This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey guys, this week on Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, I am joined by none other than the Chuck Adams, and we talk about his multiple, yes, multiple world records that he just received at the past Pope and Young convention just last week. We also talk a whole lot about mental fortitude and what it takes uh, mentally and physically to kill big animals and staying in the game even when things get hard and how to do that. Some tips and tricks to stay mentally clear uh, and keep yourself in the game. We also talk about uh, the unnecessary amount of money that people spend on gear and how by simplifying our gear and keeping those things cheaper, we can go on more hunts, therefore killing bigger animals. Guys, it's a phenomenal episode. We talk about a whole lot of things. Uh, we even talk about tuning your arrows and how Chuck tunes his arrows. He shares some really cool tips about how he tunes his arrows and the importance of Pope and Young and the conservation that they do for us as bow hunters. Guys, as always, this episode is brought to you by our good friends over at Scentlock. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life, and there is no better time to start than right now. So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. Guys, my goal is to never be the next, you know, mountain athlete that's constantly training and who's the most jacked guy you've ever seen. And they say, you got to be this way to hunt. That's not my goal. My goal is to be the most successful hunter that I can be. And I found out in 2018 that that involves working out. I went on a Western hunt and I got my tail kicked. And I decided in that moment that I would never let my physical abilities stopped me from being successful while hunting. And so I got home and I got to work losing about 50 pounds. I then met one of my mentors, Harvey Ebers, who is 82 years old and he still crushes it while he's hunting. And I, when I asked him what he attributes that to, he quickly said resistance training because he's still at age 82 resistance trains and he does that so that he can continue to hunt. And so guys, I'm a firm believer in training to be a better hunter. 
Um, that doesn't mean again, that I'm going out and running a, a marathon a day. That doesn't mean that I spend four hours in the gym a day. I train so I can be a better hunter. I quickly fell in love with a product called ready nutrients. Ready nutrients is built by outdoorsmen for outdoorsmen. And what this is going to do is it's going to create opportunities for me to be the best in the gym and get the most out of the gym that I can so that I can then in turn be the best in the woods and on the mountain. So guys, if you do any kind of training whatsoever, and if you're a hunter, again, I encourage you to do some sort of training, even if it's mobility training, even if it's just a little bit of shoulder work, knee work, ankle work, just to stay healthy and fluid for the mountain. But if you do any kind of training, I would highly encourage you to check out Ready Nutrients at LiveReady.com. Whether you're looking for a pre-workout to get the most out of the gym, whether you're looking at their BCAAs and hydration blends to recover on the mountain, whether you're looking to get better sleep so that you can, again, be better on the mountain. All of these things are were brought to mind because they were built, again, to help you perform in the woods. So guys, I would highly encourage you to check out Ready Nutrients at LiveReady.com so the next time that you hit the mountains, you will be ready. All right, Chuck. So before we jump into all these awards and all these world records and, and everything that, that took place this last week at the Pope and Young Convention, let's, let's take a minute to note this wasn't just last year. So the Pope and Young recording period is for two years. Um, so everything that Chuck was honored for and everything that Chuck received was either harvested in 2021 or 2022. Um, it was not just this past season. So um, I just wanted to, to, to make that note. Um, but Chuck, obviously, um, you were awarded new world records. Um, most people will never hear that in their lifetime. Most people will never hear you are awarded a world record, much less records. <laughs> so, so congratulations, Chuck. I know I got to tell you in person, but congratulations. They are well-deserved and I could not be happier for you. Thank you, Dylan. I appreciate it. So, and you, I believe I heard you mention at one point, I believe I heard you say that this, uh, the Sitka Blacktail non-typical velvet was your best trophy yet, which is sitting right beside you. It's a beautiful yep. deer. Uh, but you regard that as your best trophy ever. I do, Dylan. Uh, I love hunting Sitka deer. I've been hunting Sitka deer since the early 1980s. Uh, I believe I have over 40 Pope and Young Sitkas in the book at this point, uh, somewhere right at it. Um, and, uh, I've never seen a deer with this much bone on its head. Uh, as a matter of fact, this deer ended up uh, having uh, the highest net score of any Sitka deer ever recorded in Pope and Young in any category. So uh, when I saw this deer and thought it was the biggest I'd ever seen, I was I was sort of right about that. Yeah, <laughs> you were right that it was the biggest deer anybody had ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I remember right. um, having heard stories and, well, first off, that was not the first deer of the trip you killed that would have broke the world record, um, which is just mind-blowing to me. Um, so walk us through kind of that whole trip. So this was 2022. Um, was it August? August 2022. I arrived in the town of Kodiak, Alaska on the last day of July. And you had a rough bout to begin with. Like you didn't even get to hunt much, correct? 
Correct. Uh, I figured uh, by the end of August, and I was there uh, right through the end of August, uh, 60% of my time was spent in the tent with dense fog, uh, driving rain, wind so heavy that my 100-mile rated tent had three rips in the fly at the end of that uh, month. Wow. It's the worst weather anybody I know on Kodiak had ever seen. Wow. How do you even... <sighs> Before we get into the actual killing of the animals, which I know everybody wants to hear, how do you, and Chuck, you're the king of this. Like if I just, if I can say it myself, you're the king of this. Uh, you're the king of just absolutely working hard. Like no matter how bad it sucks, no matter how bad it gets, like you're the king of working hard. How do you even stay mentally in the game at that point? Like you've got to just be ready to pack up and go home. Well, I've been accustomed to bad weather on Kodiak Island since I started hunting there because it's it's pretty uh, commonplace in August and it gets worse in September and October and November and colder too. But um, I just take a lot of paperback books. Uh, I read 20 thick paperback books on that trip uh, during the month of August last year. And thank wow. goodness for that. I might have gone crazy without those books. I had Stephen King. I had... Uh, uh, several other prominent authors, and uh, uh, I just kept reading when I couldn't do anything else. Wow. You know, and that's the kind of, of mental fortitude that, you know, a lot of hunters just don't have, uh, myself included. I mean, you know, my, my father actually, uh, you did something really special for my dad. Um, I got my dad a bear grizzly, and I FaceTimed him, and I said, hey, dad, I got you a new bow, and and, uh, of course he was already incredibly excited at that point. Um, but and then I, I panned the camera over and I said, oh, I'm going to have this, this cat here, sign it for you. And, uh, then he just loses his, his mind. But, um, so thank you for, so much for doing that for my dad. But, um, sure. He, he told you on the phone, he said, Chuck, I used to want to be just like you, but now I've read your book and I realized, dude, I don't want to be anything like you because you work your tail off. And, um, and so, that is true. You know, a lot of people want to find success. A lot of people want to kill the big animals, but not everybody wants to hang out in a tent for, you know, 30 days with, with nothing to do. Well, it was, it was, uh, the worst, uh, one month I've ever spent on Kodiak. Uh, I can tell you that normally it's less than 50% of the time you're, you're stuck with bad weather. So you can't hunt, uh, but, you know, even with 60% of bad weather, uh, uh, there were days when I'd wake up at dawn and the sky was clear and I knew I had a very long Alaskan day to race around in glass and try to find yeah. uh, a big deer. So uh, it was worth it. Yeah, absolutely. So it was absolutely worth it. You broke your, you broke the world record twice. Um, what was so so? Just walk me through that whole hunt. Three animals. Uh, you killed three giants. Um, walk me through that whole hunt. Okay. Well, I did arrive in Kodiak the last day of July. Um, got organized in town like I always do. Went to uh, Safeway and bought my uh, groceries. And uh, I had it planned for the whole month. And uh, I shipped up some uh, gear, including my bows, uh, before I... Uh, uh, left on the trip because it's hard to get the stuff up 
on the airlines anymore, uh, excess baggage fees and whatnot. So I got organized, uh, flew out to my secret honey hole. And I will say uh, I've hunted Kodiak 18 times. And uh, there's one spot, I've been all over that island. There's one spot, one only one spot where I had seen more than one non-typical deer. And as you know, Pope and Young only uh, instituted the, the non-typical categories uh, a few years ago. So I was passing up non-typicals in that area. A matter of fact, I sneaked up on one uh, years ago that I photographed at close range that I passed up. I went back and reviewed that photo the other day. That deer probably would have scored, uh, uh, net scored 101, uh, uh non-typical. I just walked away from it because there was no category and I knew all those yeah. extra points would be deductions. Uh, so uh, I went, I, I thought, you know, there's a non-typical category in velvet now with Pope and Young. I'm going to go back to that spot and snoop around and see if I can find a big non-typical uh, because I knew the world record non-typical that Jack Frost shot years ago was beatable. So I went in there and I hunted for 10 days. I didn't, find anything but one small deer with a few extra points off the base. Uh, and uh, on the 11th day, I came around a corner in the morning and there were two bucks and one of them was uh, a nice non-typical, a two by two with quite a few extra points coming off the base. And uh, I knew it had more than the five inches of non-typical required by Pope and Young. So I went after and made three different stocks from three different angles and ultimately uh, Got really close to his buddy, but shot over the top of his buddy and, and shot him along the range. And uh, that deer scored, green scored, uh, right at 97 inches, which was about eight inches higher than Jack Frost's world record. So I was doing backflips at that point. Yeah. And uh, well, Little did you know that yeah, was that, the smallest of the trip. <laughs> it was it was the second smallest of the trip. I actually broke the world record three times. Uh, and... Uh, that one uh, on, on the on the seventeenth after I, I was in in the tent most of the next uh, uh, six seven days, but on the seventeenth I found a deer. It was also most of, every non-typical I've seen in this one area. It's all genetic. Uh, they're big forking horns. Everyone I've ever seen with extra points near the bottom, and this deer was was one of those. Uh, I knew he wasn't quite as big as the first one, but he looked pretty good to me. So I went after him, sneaked within 40 yards across a big canyon, took a couple hours, and uh, I shot him at 40 yards. He ended up uh, green scoring uh, about 94 net. And uh, then the weather really hit me. Uh, from the 11th through about the uh, uh, 20th, I was in my tent uh, with just horrible, unhuntable weather. And during that time, my old buddy, Ron Nijalik, uh, who I went with and who lives in Cody here uh, with me, um, uh, in Cody, Greta and I live out of ways, but uh, he's here close by. He, uh, I got him on the satellite phone because I was tired of reading books and wanted to talk to somebody. And uh, he said, you know, I heard uh, that Jim Willems, the former president of Pope and Young, uh, said on both sides that... Uh, Bob Amin might have shot a non-typical on Kosciuszko Island uh, uh, in southern Alaska that scores around 104. And I thought, boy, here, here I've got two deer that break the world record, and, and now there sounds like there's one that's better because uh, 
Jim Wellams knows what he's doing. He knows how to score yeah. beer, obviously. Um, but I just, I actually um, uh, sent out a, I was posting uh, on social media through Greta the whole time. And I sent out a post saying, records are meant to be broken. Congratulations, Bob. Sounds like you got a good one. And then the weather finally cleared, uh, like the 21st or 22nd of August. And I started hunting hard again. And the, the, the hunting days up there are like 18 hours long. Uh, so yeah. I covered a lot of ground, looked at a lot of deer, uh, was getting toward the end of my trip. I was due to go out on the 29th of uh, August uh, by bush plane back to Kodiak. And uh, uh, I was late evening going up a hill and I looked off to my left. And here's the biggest non-typical deer I'd ever seen, the one you see off my left shoulder here. And uh, uh Make a long story short, I, it was about a two-hour stock. I ended up crawling through tundra humps, had a doe and fawn almost step on me, and a, a little spike buck almost step on me. But finally, that deer stood up out of his bed, and I, I shot him at 33 yards. And uh, uh, wow. I was blown away by the by the di diameter of the bases and and the length of points. And, and again, a big fork and horn with just a lots of extra points down low. Wow. You give hope to all the guys like me. Who and, like that, and, I, and I also had a grin on my face because I was getting down to the point where I might have shot a big fork at arm to, to fill my third tag with a with a medium poke at a young buck at that point. But uh, things worked out. And uh, uh, Bob Amin's uh, big deer is now number two in, in the record book for non-typical velvet at, with a score a little over 101. And... Uh, Mine scored 117 and seven eighths after after <sighs> measuring, which now, is 32 percent. Yeah, 32 percent bigger than the old world record. Which is the largest, the largest that a world record has ever been broken um, by. That's what by you and Jason told me. That's what you and Jason told me in the Pope and Young podcast a while back, and uh, I had insane. thought about it till then. But uh, you're right. That's that is absolutely insane. So, for for those who couldn't follow what happened, in one hunt, Chuck broke the world record three times. Um, but Bob Amin also broke that current standing world record. What what was the current world record while Chuck was on that hunt? So Chuck, how it all played out. Chuck now has the one, the one, three, and four, right? And Bob has the second. That's correct. That's correct. Which is just correct. I think. It, I think when I go back, which I'm planning to do this year, I think I can uh, find another non-typical in that area because the genetics are strong. I found shed antlers uh, that are non-typical in that area. Some some folks, I uh, think these are stags, but they're not. Uh, they're 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 uh, fully viable deer, and I know they're breeding. Uh, two of my bucks had the same tooth space on the same side of the head uh, that was blank and it had, they hadn't lost their teeth. They just didn't grow one. That tells me the genetics are pretty inter intertwined in this area. Yeah. Um, I've not ever had the, um, the pleasure of meeting Bob Amin, but I hear he's just a black tail stud. Um, and I've, I've heard that. But then when you walk through that trophy display at Pope and Young Convention and you get to the Blacktail area, it was Chuck Adams, Chuck Adams, Chuck Adams, Chuck Adams, Chuck Adams. I took a video just showing. I'm like, 
the dude owns the category. Like it's just it's his category. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was this time around, but Bob is a, a an avid blacktail hunter, Sitka blacktail in particular, and that's that's why his handle is Blacktail Bob. And yeah. I have the greatest respect for his hunting ability. He's taken more, as I understand it, more Hope and Young Sitka blacktails than I have. Uh, he is Alaska resident. He has two cabins, one in Southern Alaska and one on Kodiak Island. So he really gets after those deer, uh, even in bad winter years. And I, I tend to, tend to bow out on bad winter years because I know the antlers are not as big. Uh, but uh, if I think the antlers are decent, I'm always up there. Yeah. Now, I made the statement not too long ago. Uh, and you know, I, I don't mean to toot your horn, but I'm going to, um, I made the statement not too long ago. I said, Chuck Adams is the Michael Jordan of bow hunting. And somebody, some, a non hunter might I add was like, I don't know that you could ever say that because billions of people knows who Michael Jordan is. Only bow hunters know who Chuck Adams is. And I said, well, you know, I can make that argument because in the in the sports world, there's a lot of people who argue for Kobe or LeBron or you know whoever else to be the best. I said, but really, it's kind of undisputed that Chuck is the best. I'm like, you know, you look at every category that Pope and Young has a, as to who could be the best bow hunter, and Chuck is at the top of list, top of the list of each nine of those categories. You know, most animals overall, most world records, a, every category, Chuck's at the top of. I said, so it's really undisputed. I mean, I'm on the phone with the greatest bow hunter to ever walk the planet and to kill three world records in one trip. That kind of just seals the deal. Well, you're very kind to say that. I don't pay much attention to uh, uh, accolades and whatnot. I just hunt for the enjoyment of hunting and the challenge of hunting. But uh, uh, every once in a while, somebody will come up and tell me, well, you've got this or you've got that. And uh then somebody just absolutely humbles me like you just did, uh, uh, and it makes me feel really good. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome, Chuck. You know, I I um, I I call it a distinct honor to to consider the greatest bow hunter to ever live one of one of my friends, and uh, you know I, I'll toot that horn all day long. So um, kudos to you. Um, but you also had other animals on the awards. Now, for those of you who guys do, who don't understand what I mean by awards, it is an incredible honor to have one animal invited to the Pope and Young panel. Because what that means is in those two years, you are the largest of any five animals in that category. So typical whitetail deer hard horned. That's a category. So that would mean you are the largest you were you were one of the five largest animals in that two years taken. So to have an animal, a single animal invited the panel is a crazy honor. Um, Chuck had how many total animals invited the panel? I had seven uh, invited this year. And so four of those were blacktails or five of those were blacktails? Actually, six were blacktails, uh, <laughs> three from the typical category, including okay. my world record from uh, 2021, and then yeah. 
three from the non-typical category, which I shot last year, which includes the one uh, beside me here. Then I had now, a bison, a, a Wyoming yeah, the bison, bison that was a, got the number two award. Wow. Yeah, I um, somebody made the comment, like, dude, it was super funny because Chuck walked up on stage and then walked back around and walked back up and walked back around and walked back up. And one time he just stayed there and they just kept handing him awards. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm like, well, you know, I'll never have that problem. But um, what about uh, so what was the what was the bison hunt? Where was it? You said it was Wyoming. Um, and that was 2021, if I remember right. That was 2022, actually. 2022. Uh, okay. And it was last year. And uh, uh, Wyoming bison are, are recognized by Pope and Young as uh, fair chase. And I promise you they are. Um, I hunted for days and days and days in October after elk and antelope and mule deer were over in Wyoming. And uh, I only saw two bull bison the whole hunt. Uh, and I was out there all day long. Um, uh, wow. They 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 typically live in national parks like uh, uh, Glacier National Park, and then uh, they'll drift out onto the national forest every once in a while. Uh, but there are a lot of outfitters that hunt that country, and the bison, especially a ten-year-old trophy uh, bull, they know all about where those lines are, and uh, so you don't get them wandering out very often. And uh, I just kept watching and watching and watching until uh, uh, the only two I saw came wandering into the open zone. And uh, I uh, threw on my pack and uh, grabbed my Baralaskan compound bow and went into heavy timber because these animals don't stay out in the open like you think uh, plains animals uh, once did. They're in the heavy timber a lot. I went through the heavy timber and there was about four inches of snow on the ground. And I got to the far edge where I knew there was a little meadow and I thought maybe they'd be feeding because it was in the evening. And I walked up to the last little pine tree between me and that meadow. And here was one of those bison three yards away from me on the other side. And I thought, whoa, what am I going to do? Uh, he, I couldn't get a shot. I could just see his horns bobbing up and down. And I was about to back off and I heard a noise to my left and here came that other buffalo, except he was coming around my side of that little pine tree. Oh and my as gosh. you know, Dylan, bison are dangerous. Yellowstone Park yeah. uh, has incidents with bison every year. I thought, man, this guy could hook me and hurt me. So I, I lifted my right hand and, and just waved at him just, just slowly. And he, his eyes got big and he recoiled and he ran away. And the bison in front of me ran the other way and stopped out in the open at 25 yards, and, and I nailed him. Uh, that was wow. a really exciting trip. How long did that hunt? How long did that? How long were you on that hunt? Uh, it was oh, 10 or 12 days, I suppose. Yeah, I'd have to go back to my notes, but it was uh, it was a while for sure. So, and then the work began. Uh, yeah, uh, my friend Ron Najalik and and his nephew Sam, who's a big beefy guy, uh, and Sam's son uh, drove for a couple hours to where I was, and uh, we started uh, uh, butchering and and uh, sledding out meat on the snow with a couple of plastic, big plastic sleds I had, and uh, it took all night to get that buffalo out. Thank goodness for good friends, I'll tell you that. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Um, so uh, what's that one animal that you just happened to stumble into? Um, you know, we can't say that about the blacktails. You hunted those ridiculously hard. Um, but what's that one animal where you're just like, you know, he was the first deer I saw all the week and I shot him and he was giant. Um, because there are people who, you know, just stumble into one. Um, most of the time they come with incredible amount of work and discipline and hanging in there. And, uh, but what, what's that one for you that just, just happened? Well, well, Dylan, uh, five of my seven, uh, Pope and Young World Records have been, you'd never planned something like that, but, but I've at least had an inkling that I might be able to find an animal big enough. Sitka deer's one, the mountain caribou in the Northwest Territories of Canada. I broke the world record in 1995. I hunted 10 years straight to, to try to break that world record. So that was not a total accident. Um, uh, Three of the world records are Sitka deer. Uh, bison, I've had the world record once on bison in the year 2000. So the two that were I just stumbled into were uh, cow's whitetail, typical uh, in Arizona in 1989. Uh, I hunted uh, with my old friend, uh, the late Larry Hethington, uh, on that trip because he had an access to some good country. And... Uh, uh, I was just looking for a good solid 90 or 100 inch deer, and I I, were, I saw this buck, and I I didn't know enough about cows deer to know what I was looking at, but I stalked him and got him. Uh, and uh, when Larry, I got Larry, and he went back, he he was he was speechless when he saw the deer hanging in the juniper tree. Uh, you know, this deer little, so I could hoist it up by myself and and hang it where it could cool. It scored 110 and 58s. Uh, Boone and Crockett minimum is 110. So that was that was a world record with Pope and Young for a while. Total accident. Um, wow. My my world record Yellowstone or or American elk uh, from the year 2000 was also uh, an accident. I mean nobody finds a, a 409 point elk on purpose. Uh, I just happened to be in in the right spot at the right time the year before. I saw that elk. I already had filled my tag. I was mule deer hunting and I was blown away by his size. So I went back the next year and that was delivered. I hunted that area, scoured it, found that elk again. Uh, obviously the same bull and uh, eventually managed to bag him. Um, but I mean, that's just that's just pure luck. You don't you don't find an animal that big on purpose. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask is because, you know, going back to the point I made earlier is everybody wants to hunt these giant animals and, and they, they want to kill a, a giant, you know, whitetail or elk or, or whatever it takes. But, you know, they go on an elk hunt for seven days out of the year and they, they want to kill a giant. Well, at that point, like you're just going to have to find a needle in a haystack and stumble on one. I mean, if that's, you know, if that's how you get to hunt, I mean, if you only, if you're the kind of guy that, that you get two weekends a year, and you're hunting public ground for whitetails in Oklahoma or, or Missouri, your expectations have to change a little bit. Like you can't expect to just stumble on a 180. Um, your expectations have to change and you have to realize like, I've only got two days to do this two days on a weekend on public ground, you know, 
I'm going to have to to be happy with a 120 or a 115, you know, whatever it might be. Your expectation, your expectations might have to change because very rarely does a guy just stumble on a 180 whitetail or a, a 380 bull. I mean, and, and and even Chuck isn't. That's not a fair assumption to say he stumbled on them because he spends, you know. 80% of the year in the field. So if anybody's going to stumble on him, it's going to be the guy who's in the field for 80 days a year or, or 80% of the year. I mean, um, but most of the time you got to get out and just grind and work hard and, and chase after him if that's what you want to do. Um, so Chuck, what has been the number one thing that you have found that when things suck, when, when things are just horrible, how do you hang in there? What's been that one kind of mental thing that's kept you in that game? I guess I guess I'm just like a bulldog. Uh, I never let go. And uh, my experience over the years has told me that if you never let go, things always turn around eventually, unless you run out of time. And I've run out of time on hunts a lot. I, you know, I burned my tag or or shot a smaller animal uh, for meat and, and still had a grin on my face. But um, uh, things always do turn around and it'll make your head spin how quick they turn around sometimes. I mean, you beat your head against the wall, beat your head against the wall, uh, miss a shot or, or, or blow multiple stocks. And then suddenly everything aligns and, and, and you get the job done. And uh, that's what I would encourage people to do is just be persistent never get down. I mean, sure, I get down uh, uh, when I make mistakes and I kick myself and try to do better the next time. But uh, you can't get too far down because the animals have every advantage in the sport. And uh, uh, us, us bow hunters have every disadvantage. And so right. what might seem like a mistake, it's not really a mistake uh, a lot of the time. It's just that the, the critter got the upper hand. Yeah. Well, and you know, our mutual friend, Fred Eichler, um, you know, he talks about, and he puts it in a, in a, in a really cool perspective. Um, you know, a lot of guys want to give up on day five, day six, day seven. They haven't seen any animals. They haven't even found the elk. They haven't even found the bears. You know, they're ready to give up and, and throw it in. But, but Fred says, he's like, dude, I have, if I haven't seen any elk, I've got more of a chance on day eight than I did on day one. So it's not that I lose hope. It's that my hope keeps building. Like I keep getting more excited because, you know, sure it's day seven and I haven't even found elk yet, but now today my chances are better for finding elk than they were day one because I've weeded out areas and I know they're not over here. So I can try over here now. And so my chances, my chances keep increasing. They're not going down. You know, things aren't getting worse as we go. They're getting better as we go. Um, and so that's a, 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 a really cool way to look at it, in my opinion. It sure is. And Fred's an upbeat guy and a very successful bow hunter and a very successful outfitter. And I'm sure he's been very frustrated with some of his clients who did want to give up. We've talked about that, Fred and I, a little bit uh, over over the poker table. And yeah. uh, uh, the, 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 the people who, you know, that old saying 80% of success is just showing up. Uh, it was never truer than it is with bow hunting. You know, if you're not out right. there hammering away, you're not going to see the animal. Yeah. 
That's absolutely true. Um, now, I, I'm also a big proponent. I tell guys all the time, like when you start to get burned out and you start to just feel miserable and hate it, like take a day, like take a day break, you know, go come off the mountain and, you know, if you're on an elk hunt, come off the mountain and go grab a hot meal and a, and a shower at a truck stop and then go back up on the mountain. Like take that day to just, you know, recharge the batteries and, and get your mind right. And, and, um, you know, I, perfect example. I was on a bear hunt one time and, uh, we were in Idaho in the back country and we just weren't finding bears and, and we were putting in so much time and so many miles. And I mean, it was just a hard hunt and, you know, I wanted to, I was like, this sucks. This is miserable. So rather than giving up and going home, let's drive down the mountain, grab a hot burger and fries. You know, we'll get a shower and, and, and we'll get cleaned up and, and then we'll come back. And the, literally when we get back, we find bears. And, uh, you know, it was just that that's all I needed. I needed one day to just mentally reset, take a break, go fishing. You know, I casted a line and went fishing and caught some trout. And, but that's all I needed was just one day to just reset the batteries to, to, to take a break and get back in the game. So, uh, don't be afraid to do that either though, um, to hang in there longer because it will prove itself to be beneficial. That's great advice, Dylan. Uh, as a matter of fact, on my Sitka deer hunt last, uh, August, um, there was one day where, where the first half, the morning through about one o'clock in the afternoon, was rotten weather and fog, and you couldn't see past your nose hardly. And then it cleared up. But I had been pounding it for day after day after day. And I said, you know what? I can't get that far from camp uh, with what I have left of this day. I'm just going to relax in the tent and read on another book and, uh, and recharge my batteries. and. Uh, uh, the next day I went out and I believe that was the 16th day. And on the 17th, I shot my second buck. So, yeah. uh, and I felt guilty about it, to be honest, that I, I didn't just jump out and go hunting again, but I was pretty thrashed. So I just took a break. Sometimes that's all you need. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, even the best of, of sports players have to come out and take a breather every once in a while. Uh, and, it, and it makes you more beneficial, you know, and, and I equate it to, you know, I told one guy this, he was a big beefy guy and you could tell he hits the gym all the time. And I'm like, dude, you want all these gains in the gym, but sometimes the best way to get gains is to take a day off, uh, you know, to find rest so your body can recoup and rejuvenate. Like, so the same is true with hunting. We want to find all this success. And, you know, sometimes we just think, well, if I just keep going, I'll, I'll be more, I'll, yeah, I'll have better chances. But your mind is fatigued, your body's fatigued, you're tired, you're not mentally in the game. And when we take that day off, or, or even a few hours, but when we take that break and we just, you know, mentally reset, physically reset, man, it'll make the last four or five, seven days way better than if we just try to stay in it and, and grind it out. That's a great attitude. It really is. Guys, not knowing the law is not an excuse for breaking the law. And sometimes going through different state agency websites, they're clunky, they're hard to get around, they're hard to understand, they're, they're not laid out well. They're just difficult. And for guys, especially who hunt multiple states, um, you're bouncing between states, you're going different places. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with season dates, bag limits, laws, rules, regulations. Seasonreport.com is your one-stop shop for 
everything you need to know about every state you hunt in. You can save the, the counties that you hunt in inside your portfolio, and then you can look at everything on a calendar view. So I can see when the seasons open and close in Oklahoma and Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas. I can see when all those season dates are open, when they overlap with rifle season, so I know when i got to throw my orange on. I can see everything on one easy-to-use, easy-to-understand platform, but also every rule, law, regulation, it's right there. I don't have to go through the state clunky agency websites. It's all right there in one place for me to look at. Easy to understand, easy to follow. Guys, this is something that I it saves me every year. I check the, the I check it out every year. Um, I look at it before every hunt to make sure, you know, something didn't open or close that I didn't know about. Guys, this entire platform is just 10 bucks for the entire year. It's the best 10 bucks, in my opinion, that you can spend on hunting and making sure that you're covered as far as the law goes. Guys, use code hunting 101 that's all caps hunting 101 and get that entire platform for just 10 bucks for the entire year i would highly highly encourage it again it's the best 10 bucks that i believe you can spend in a season so chuck one thing that i do want to talk about um that i admire immensely about you you posted that picture uh in your tent on the on the hunt that we're talking about where you're in the tent for you know crazy amounts of hours you posted a picture and you could see all the clothes hanging around you. Um, and I saw that picture posted on a forum and it just, the caption was, you don't have to spend 10 grand on Sitka to be successful or, you know, 15 grand on QU or whatever it might be. You don't have to spend all this ungodly amount of money to be successful. Um, and so I look at that and I'm, I'm thinking, man, Chuck's using some old t-shirts you know, some old, some old clothing, and he's using a bear Alaskan, which is one of the best shooting bows ever, in my opinion. And that's a five hundred and fifty dollar bow. And you know, some of these guys they think, well, I've got to, I've got to buy this bow, and I've got to put these sights and these stabilizers and this quiver, and all of a sudden they've got a three thousand dollar setup, and they're shooting deer at twenty yards from a tree stand. That's all they hunt. But they've been sold on this idea that they have to have that equipment. They have to have that gear. Um, so I admire that greatly about you. That that you don't, you know, when I watch you, it's not you're not decked out in in thirty thousand dollars worth of gear, toting around a five thousand dollar bow. Man, you're out there killing world records with a five hundred and fifty dollar bow. Well, one reason I really enjoyed being affiliated with Bear Archery is Bear Archery makes great products at a reasonable price. You don't have to mortgage your house to go get set up to shoot a deer. And uh, uh, the Alaskan is a fine bow. Like you say, it's uh, about $550 retail. That sucker, I can, I can hit my thumbnail at 20 yards with that, with that bow. What more do I need? It's quiet, it's fast, and it's accurate. Uh, and... Uh, I have nothing against Sitka gear or, or QU gear, but um, I do just fine with. I'd rather spend my money on the hunt on rather than <laughs> a big assemblage of equipment. Uh, well, uh, let's let's be let's me take one more bush plane trip in Alaska or uh, buy a Bingo. couple more paperback books, you know. And uh, so money's important. I, well, I've had so many guys. You know, I, I went on an elk hunt last year. And I literally have a guy sitting here talking to me saying, man, I wish I could afford to go on an elk hunt. And I'm like, dude, you're wearing all Sitka 
and carrying a $3,000 bow. Like you could, you just spend all your money on gear to shoot deer. Like, (laughs) man, you think back and you're like, dude, what about the Indians who carved their bows and found sharp rocks to put on wooden arrows and they were successfully harvesting deer. But yet we think that we have to have this $4,000 bow and each arrow we sling costs 35 bucks. And I mean, why not put that money towards hunting more? Like I like to hunt. So why not save my money on all the gear and go hunt more? I agree. The one the one place where I don't skimp at all is optics. Uh, the, the 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 more you pay, the better optics you generally get. And I don't skip on that because I hunt with my eyes. So, uh, in in a lot, Sitka deer is a a, a good example. Uh, I'm I'm glassing ninety percent of the time, and uh, uh, so good optics, both spotting scope and and binocular uh, are essential, but. A lot of the other stuff, it's smoke and mirrors. You know, you really don't need it. Uh, when I got my uh, Super Slam finally with the bow in 1990, one of my good friends in my hometown in California said, I don't understand how you can do this. How can you afford this? Well, the prices were a lot lower then, obviously, for, for hunts. But uh, I always went on do-it-yourself hunts uh, when it was legally possible. Uh, but um, <clears throat> old Bill asked me that. And I said, well, we were standing in his front yard. I said, you see that uh, motor home over there you just bought? Uh, it's a matter of priorities. <laughs> I'm driving my 10-year-old pickup truck, my old Toyota. And uh, uh, I spent the amount of money you spent on that motor home to go on three or four hunts. So a lot yeah. of it is just priorities. Absolutely. That's, man, I, I have said it multiple times. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. I'm like, don't tell me you wish you could afford to go on an elk hunt when you smoke cigarettes. Like, I'm just saying, <laughs> because if you quit that and put it in a jar at the end of the year, you can afford an elk hunt. Like, but again, right? it's all priorities. It's all, I mean, and, and it goes back to that whole idea. Like, I want to kill bigger animals, but are you really, are you really willing to do what it takes to kill big animals? And, and guys, if you've listened to this show more than once, you know that I'm not a Chuck Adams. I don't care to shoot the biggest and best animals. Like I like to kill stuff. So I just, I'll put an arrow through whatever I see. Um, that's how I am. But my mindset is this. I want to be able to hunt whitetails in Kansas and Oklahoma and Missouri and Arkansas and Texas. I want to be able to do that every year. So to do that, like I'm going to have to, to, you know, keep driving my 2008 Silverado. I'm going to have to keep, um, liability insurance on it. You know that, I mean, those are types of things that I, I save on so that I can then put in a jar to say, okay, I now have more money to hunt in more States this year. Um, I mean, that's just what, what I have to do, man. I, I wanted to go on an elk hunt last year. So I went through and I sold two guns like that. I went through my closet and I found two guns and I sold them. So I could afford to go on an elk hunt. Um, that's it, that's my priority. Um, so, you know, you have to you have to figure those things out and what's important to you if you want to do it. Right. I I've never been one to say that uh, shooting big animals is necessarily important. It depends on 
your mindset. I go after big animals because it lets me hunt more and kill less. Uh, uh, on, uh, to be honest with you, on Kodiak Island, some days I was seeing 35 or 40 bucks in a single day. And wow. uh, I probably could have filled my tags, all three of them, in one day if I had wanted to. And I don't say that lightly because my old buddy Ron Nijalik and I went to Kodiak a few years ago. And I kept looking for a big deer that never showed up. Ron shot a bomber that was a top, top Pope and Young Award winner uh, uh, during that period. I couldn't find a big deer to save my life. And I told Ron with three days left in the hunt, I'm going to go out and fill my tags. And he kind of chuckled. I went out the next day and I shot all three of my deer, all Pope and Youngs, <laughs> not huge, but all Pope and Youngs in that single day. And then the next two days, it went, we hadn't seen bears in the area, or I wouldn't have done it, but they were down low in the salmon streams. Next two days, it was a grueling meat pack, uh, uh, but uh, uh, it, it could be done. But if I had done that on day one, I wouldn't have, of that hunt or any other hunt, I wouldn't have had any more fun. Uh, wow. And uh, so I trophy hunt uh, so I can hunt more. That's the reason. And I also well, am self-employed, which allows me, unlike some folks, I'm self-employed so I can work my butt off uh, during the off times, uh, you know, 70, 80 hours a week, try to get ahead, which I'm doing right now, so I can go spend time on pla in places like Kodiak. Well, Chuck, if you ever need somebody to come along and just shoot the ones you want to pass, I can do that. I can be that guy. I'll take the bullet. I'll, I'll, that'll be my cross to bear. <laughs> I, uh, I am excited. We are headed to Liberty Ranch, which is, uh, one of my favorite places on earth. Uh, we're headed there in December and, uh, we're going to hunt whitetails together and, uh, it's going to be an absolute blast. I can't wait. Um, I can't wait to just sit and share camp with Chuck Adams, but, uh, I'll, Listen, I'm just going to sit with you, though, and every big deer that walks by that you says, eh, not big enough, I'll put an arrow in him for you. <laughs> okay, that works for me. I actually think I'm going <laughs> to hunt with a uh, 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 bear uh, uh, mag riser takedown recurve on that really? trip just for the fun of it. I I, I, I started bow hunting with uh, recurve bows, and uh, uh, I had a bear mag riser uh, recurve many 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 years ago and i've got it got one now and, and i th i think i'm going to use that 50 pound bow on that trip now so maybe often, you'll have an advantage with your bear compound <laughs> i'll take my i'll take my bear recurve too if you're going to hunt with a recurve i will too okay um okay how often right. how often Sounds do you good. pick up a recurve and hunt with one do you, do you go on many hunts with recurves I don't, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the industry, uh, particularly the magazine industry wants me to write about contemporary products and that's mostly compound bows. So I hunt primarily with compound bows, but I inventoried my, my bows the other day. I have over 30, uh, recurves of long bows, uh, including my, my favorite wing Thunderbird bow from back in the, uh, uh, late 1960s and early 70s. Uh, and uh, I pick them up. I've got a 20-yard indoor range here in my basement. So I, I shoot them uh, at targets uh, uh, periodically. And I love it. I love finger shooting uh, because I, 
I uh, think I'm pretty good at it. And uh, I just feel really connected with the arrow with my fingers. But, uh, you know, it's all good. Uh, I love shooting a release aid in a compound bow, too. Yeah. No, I, uh, you know, I, that's something that I've really gotten into is is traditional archery. And I'm kicking myself because I gave away my first two recurves. You know, as I upgraded, I gave those away. And now looking back, I'm like, man, recurves are such a piece of art that I'll never give another one away. You know, I, I've got bows and and it 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 it's sad, but I've got I've got buddies come in here and there's recurves hanging all over the place, and they're like, hey, what would you what would you want for one? And I'm like, dude, I I'm not get I'm not selling any of them because it's such an art. Like they're all different. They're all, you know, each tip is a little bit, uh, it's sanded down just a little bit differently. And each grip is a little bit different and, and they're all just an absolute work of art. And so, um, I love, love recurves, man. They're, they're beautiful. They're fun to shoot. They're challenging. I love them. So well, I'm in the same boat with you, Dylan. Um, Back in my college days when I was looking under the bed for dimes to, to buy lunch, you know, um, I sold two uh, bear recurves that I wish I had back. I had an old HC 300 uh, target bow that I shot in college uh, competitively. Uh, that was just a gorgeous bow, 32 pound draw. I mean, it was great. And then the, and then the uh, mag riser uh, recurve uh, from bear. Uh, I sold both of those uh, because I needed the money and I've been kicking myself ever since because in the long run, it probably wouldn't have made that much difference. Yeah. Uh, and and I tried to get the HC 300 back. The lady I sold it to, who was a target archer, um, she left it in her car and it was stolen out of her car the day, the week after I sold it to her. So it was long gone. It just broke my heart. Oh, that makes me sick. You know, you know, the worst part about archery yeah. stuff being stolen is that most likely the person who stole it has no idea the value has no idea the stories it could tell has no idea where it's been what it's seen what it's done you know whereas if 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 i were to give my dad a bow if i were to say dad i want you to, to have this bow you know he'll forever be able to say man my son saw, shot a deer in missouri with this bow you know uh he could tell the stories of the bow. He knows the history of the bow. Whereas if some guy just walks by and picks it up and says, Oh yeah, this looks like it's probably worth something. They have no idea what they have. They have no idea what they've taken. Um, you know, I, I had a buddy and he got a knife stolen and it was given to him by his great grandfather. And so, and, and it was a very valuable knife, but the guy that stole it, he doesn't know any of that stuff. It, to him, it's just, it looked expensive, so he took it. And uh, that's that has always been, like, my biggest pet peeve. You know, if somebody steals a, a truck, they can figure out, you know, what it's worth and sell it for that. But, man, some of these bows, they have so much history and so much, you know, stories they could tell that you can never put a price tag on them. And sometimes it just really sucks to see them, to see it happen like that. I, I agreed. Uh, uh, you know, I shot, as you know, I shot uh, a bear Alaskan bow back in the 70s uh, when bear came out with their. Uh, Didn't you shoot your first Pope Young Animal with that? Now. 
their 49 inch axle axle finger <laughs> compound. I shot my first Pope and young animal with that bow, a, a Canada moose. Uh, and, uh, and I shot some deer with it and, uh, I still have that bow hanging on my wall. And, and like you say, there's the history attached to that isn't worth anything to anybody else, but yeah. it sure is to me. Right. Um, Chuck, I, I want to talk real quick about Pope and Young, uh, because we've talked a lot about Pope and Young, um, you know, and in, in this episode. And for those of you who don't know, Bear and Pope and Young work really closely together. Um, they're they're proud partners of each other. Bear is a proud supporter of Pope and Young. Um, why should people be members of Pope and Young? Because the reason I I, I ask is because. So many people just think, well, I'm never going to shoot world records. I'm never going to shoot giant animals. So Pope and Young is really not for me, uh, which couldn't be further from the truth. So why should people join Pope and Young, Chuck? Well, Dylan, I, I probably told you uh, uh, before, uh, but the audience might not have heard it. Um, I didn't enter animals for a number of years in Pope and Young. And then my old friend, Jim Doherty, who was president of the Pope and Young uh, for an extended period of time back in the uh, 70s and 80s. Uh, uh, he said, why aren't you entering these animals? And and I said, well, you know, I hunt for, like I said earlier, I, I hunt for fun, I hunt for challenge, why should I? And he said, you know, he said, it gives everybody else something to shoot for. It, it, it lets everybody else know what other bow hunters are doing. So there's a benchmark. And I thought about that and uh, didn't think about it too long and entered all my critters. And I've been entering them ever since. And uh, uh, the record book uh, does, give, if you're competitive, gives you something to strive for, uh, like the uh, non-typicals that I deliberately went after last year. Uh, or it just tells you that, wow, the whitetail I just shot is a pretty good one, you know, because he makes Pope yeah. Young. Maybe he's a, a 135 or 140 deer. And uh, uh uh, that's good. And without the record book, uh, all you'd have is a few anecdotal uh, uh, statements by taxidermists and other people to say it's a nice deer or not. And uh, so it, it kind of solidifies things to have the record book. Everybody should enter their animals, in my opinion, for that reason, yeah. to do me a favor. Yeah, absolutely. It is It is the number one resource for conservation and for bow hunting in North America. Uh, you know, just two years ago when those certain counties in Georgia were looking at, at banning bow seasons, you know, Pope and Young sent their data in and sent their record books in to show all the conservation uh, numbers and, and animals that were harvested and, and, you know, all of those things. And, and they're used in, they were just used in Russia to, to prove the legality, uh, the, the lethality uh, of hunting big game with archery equipment. They were used in, in, in Greenland. And, and so these numbers, they're not just to say, well, look at me, I'm such a great bow hunter. Those numbers are needed. Um, you know, if, if take Kansas, for instance, I always use that as an example, cause that's where I'm from. But you know, if Kansas were to say, Hey, we're going to go to a two buck state, you can kill two bucks now. Well, in five years, they're going to want to look at some sort of data to see how those numbers have affected the 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 hurt the the antler size and the maturity of these animals and so they're going to pull the Pope and Young record book datas over those five years to see if if antler sizes went up and went down 
how is it doing for the for the Bucks and for the herd? Um, and so we need your entries, um, but we also need you to be a member. We need you to join Pope and Young because there's power in numbers, and and every week there's something coming across the Pope and Young desks where where voices are needed, where they need us to step in and and make a case for you know bow hunting seasons or um, legal things. Should we allow cellular trail cameras? Should we allow you know range finding sites? Should we allow you name it, and, and they need somebody to step in. Should we allow, here's a big one, should we allow muzzleloaders to expand, to expand their season into archery seasons? Should we allow crossbows all archery season long? And, and that's where Pope and Young steps in, and we say, hey, we represent X amount of bow hunters, and, and we can't support this. So as a member, there's power in numbers. So what's more important if we stand up and say, hey, we represent 5,000 bow hunters or, hey, we represent 500,000 bow hunters and, and this can't ha- you can't take away our season. You can't do that. Um, another thing is, you know, Chuck, a lot of people think that that um, the record book is just to show off. It's just to show how good you are. And and um, well, a that animal deserves to be in a book amongst its peers. Um, it deserves to be honored with the rest of the biggest animals taken in North America with archery equipment. But also, the record book exists for the very purpose to prove that archery is a legitimate means of harvesting big game animals. You know, in 1960, a lot of these states didn't allow archery seasons. And so, Glenn St. Charles and and Harv Ebers and, and, you know, their group of friends, they got together and started pulling this data to be able to take it to different states and, sh- and show hey, look, there were X amount of, of big game animals, mature big game animals harvested in Arkansas last year. So you being Missouri, you should open an archery season. Um, so many of you live in states that have bow seasons because of the work that Pope and Young did through the record book. Um, and so, guys, I would highly encourage you to become a member. It's 45 bucks a year. And going back, you know, for guys who, you know, you spend five grand on camo and two grand on a bow to not say I'm going to spend 45 bucks a year so that I can so that I can protect my rights so that I can continue to do this so that my kids can do this when they're older. So my grandkids can do this. How could you not? Um, how could you not say I'm going to invest 45 bucks a year? That way I can help ensure my rights as a bow hunter. Um, another thing that a lot of you might not know is that anytime you buy a new bear bow, um, all you got to do is register that bow and you're going to get a free Pope and Young membership. Um, that's how much Bear believes in, in what Pope and Young does. When you buy a new bow, if you register that bow, Bear is going to pay for your first year membership uh, to Pope and Young. And so, guys, I would highly encourage you to check it out as an organization because it's not just a record book. It's not just a look how good I am. I killed X amount of animals. Um, we need Chuck's numbers, but we need your numbers as well. Uh, we need to be able to show that data to different states and different legislators um, to prove archery as a legitimate means of harvesting big game animals. And I want to give a shout out to uh, my boyhood hero, Fred Bear. Uh, as it relates to what you just said, Dylan, uh, uh, Fred Bear put bow hunting on the map by proving that an arrow can drop any critter in North America and around the yep. world. And uh, uh, he was right in there pushing for bow hunting seasons because the arrow was lethal and he proved it. And uh, so we all owe a debt 
of gratitude to uh, the late great Fred Bear uh, for what he did for our sport. Yeah, absolutely. And he was a massive supporter of Pope and Young, a massive supporter. Um, in fact, the Fred Bear Trust Fund is named Fred Bear because he made the first um, donation into the to the trust fund for Pope and Young. Um, and so, guys, again, I would just highly encourage you to check it out. Um, look into it at least. Uh, you owe it to yourself as a bow hunter. Doesn't matter if you've ever had a book in the, uh, uh, an animal in the books. Doesn't matter if you ever plan on getting any animals in the books. Uh, you should become a member because it's helping to protect your rights as a bow hunter. Um, Chuck, what is uh, what's that one tip that 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 tip that you've got um, that that will that the listener can take and make themselves a better hunter with? I think we've already touched on it, uh, Dylan. Uh, persistence more than anything else. You might not be the world's best shot. You might not be the world's best hunter. Uh, you might not have the best luck in the world. But if you are persistent, if you never say never and keep hammering away and spend as much time, time's one of the keys, spend as much time as you can uh, trying to get the animal you want, sooner or later, it will work out. And if you bail on that project, uh, I guarantee it won't work out because you're bailing because yeah. you haven't succeeded yet. Yeah. Uh, I did want to ask you when you're in a place like Alaska um, or Oregon or, you know, you're hunting anywhere where it's damp and wet. How do you keep your equipment functioning? Well, like what's that tip that you've got that, that can keep your bow working well, keep your bow dry. Uh, maybe it's keeping yourself dry. Um, but, but how do you, how do you stay with all of your gear functioning well when you're in a damp environment like that? Well, I do wear outer shells, uh, in wet weather. I don't like to hunt in, in the rain because everything does get soaked sooner or later. Uh, but you do what you have to do. Uh, if you've got a, a pretty much bomb proof and weatherproof, uh, a bow, like, like the bear Alaskan, I don't worry about it getting wet. Uh, you know, that sucker was soaked the whole time I was in Alaska and it performed fine. Back in the day when limbs were li like the recurve limbs we have today, uh, were laminated with wood cores. It could have been a problem, but uh, modern compounds don't have that problem anymore. Um, I stay as dry as I can. And uh, if it's raining too much, I have friends in hunting camps that say, man, I got to go out and hunt. And I said, well, I'll see you later. And I kick back until the, the, the weather improves because you could thrash around in really wet weather forever and not get the job done and then go out uh, in, in two hours after it clears up and shoot an animal. So uh, I like to stay out of it if I don't absolutely have to be in the bad weather. And and then I wear uh, uh, waterproof shells over over uh, my inner garments and uh, – uh, I try to dry off my equipment, really say uh, uh, tab, I keep it applied. If I'm finger shooting, I tabs in a plastic uh, baggie in my pocket until it's time to actually shoot in wet weather. But that doesn't happen very much anymore with the modern bows and the release aids. Do you do anything to your equipment um, as far as like rust prevention or uh, water retention? Of course, wax your string so your string doesn't hold water. But um, do you do anything else to like limb bolts or anything to keep to keep stuff rust prevented? I carry a uh, 
container of Hoppy's uh, gun oil, which is a low viscosity uh, oil. And, and I will oil everything, uh, I'll bet, during uh, 29 days on Kodiak last year. I oiled all the, the uh, steel parts on my bare Alaskan uh, 10 or 12 times. Uh, I, I dry everything off and then I make sure there's oil on it because uh, it probably wouldn't hurt it in most cases unless it's moving part thing like a like a uh, arrow rest probably wouldn't hurt anything. I just I just object to the look of rust on any steel part on a bow. Yeah. What what rest do you shoot on that Alaskan? I'm shooting one of the on the bear one of the bear dropways. Uh, gotcha. Uh, works great. Uh, uh, yeah. Now. That's one thing. I, my favorite part about the Alaskan is just the simplicity. Nothing on that bow is overcomplicated. Mm-hmm. Nothing on that bow moves unless it has to. Uh, you know, all the a lot of these bows today, there's so many moving parts and so many arms that swing. And, you know, you've got all these different cable systems now that do all these crazy different things. And, and um, that bare Alaskan just keeps everything streamlined and simple. Makes it easier to work on. Makes it easier in the field if something does happen. Um, it's just a simple bow, but it's a flat-out stinking shooter. I'll tell you that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I've always uh, had the philosophy that simple and dependable is better, and uh, that completely describes the the Bear Alaskan bow. Um, easy to work on. When mine came in. Uh, uh, the draw length was an inch too long for me. Uh, I got out my Allen wrench and and had it back down where I wanted it in in ten minutes. Yeah. Uh, the, the draw weight didn't change during that process, uh, and and it tuned up like a dream. Uh, so I agree. Uh, simpler pen and bolt better. Uh, actually, the drop where I'm shooting is from Trophy Ridge. I said bear, but uh, Trophy Ridge yeah. and bear are so tightly aligned that. Uh, I think yeah. of it as the same company, actually. Um, how do you how do you tune your bows? What kind of process do you go through to tune your bows? I shoot through paper, um, and unlike what a lot of folks do, I don't shoot through paper with fletching. What I do is weigh my fletching, and then use a bear shaft with with an electrical tape wrapping the fletching area. The, yes. that weighs exactly the same as my fletching. Therefore, there's no steerage on that arrow at all, but the but the uh, uh, front of center balance and, and the weight out of the bow are exactly the same. So when I get bullet holes, and I mean real bullet holes with a shaft like that, the thing is, it, you know, it's, it's vibrating a little bit, but it's almost a straight bullet hole through paper. When I get the bullet holes at three different distances, I usually shoot at six six feet and 12 feet and uh, 20 feet. And when I get bullet holes at all three uh, distances through stretched butcher paper, I am tuned. And and the fletched arrows uh, with the drop away type rest or any clear, good clearance rest, they're going to hit the same place and just fly like a dart. So how are you tuning? Are you, are you tuning off the rest? Do you just move your rest in and out or do you, you know, uh, what what are you doing to to get that to to achieve I, I that? Do, I do I do I uh, do I do multiple things. Uh, 
because because of the release aid, you have a tight end loop. Uh, it's a it's a little more difficult to move that around. So I tend to move the rest up or down uh, to eliminate porpoising of the arrow, and then I'll move the uh, the uh, rest in and out uh, to to uh, clear up any fishtailing problems. But uh, I also dig around and make my arrows a little shorter to make them stiffer, a little longer. I yeah. play around with it and discard a few shafts uh, in the tuning process, uh, so I don't have to do anything crazy with the arrow rest or the or that tight end loop. Uh, and I'll move my draw weight up and down a bit too to facilitate the same thing. Uh, and you just ease into that that sweet spot where your, your bullet holes are in the paper. And and the arrows hitting in in vertical line with your uh, with your sight pins and and when you get that together, uh, you can't get any better accuracy. Yes, that that is brilliant in my opinion. Um, now, for those of you wondering why he weighs out and puts tape on the back, which Chuck, it's funny. The reason I said yes like that, I actually just put out a tip. Uh, well, I just recorded a tip, um, uh, on that very topic, uh, because what happens is when you add weight to the back of your arrow, you're stiffening your spine. So if you get that perfect right. bullet hole, and I mean, perfect bullet hole, then by adding the weight of a wrap and fletchings, you're actually going to make that arrow just a bit too stiff. Uh, so then if you were to shoot again, you would actually have a stiff tear. Um, so by tuning with that weight already on the back of your arrow, that eliminates that. It eliminates the, the I had a perfect bullet hole. Why am I now stiff? Uh, well, because it's you, you added weight to the back of your arrow. Adding weight to the front of your arrow weakens your spine. Adding arrow to the back of your arrow, adding weight to the back of your arrow stiffens your spine. Um, so... Bingo, beautiful bingo, that's a great bingo. tip that you shared there chuck um you know every time i'm I, I actually just had a guy i built him some arrows and um he showed up and i handed him 11 arrows and, and he said i thought i gave you 12 and i said yeah here's your 12th and it had a wrap and then it had a piece of tape around it and he's like what is that for and i said well that's the exact same weight as your other arrows but it's so you can bear shaft tune your bow and uh and dude's eyes were just like I never even would have thought about that. Like, wow, it's incredible. Um, so fantastic tip there on tuning your bows. Um, Chuck, straight man. Bear, straight bear shaft tuning is bogus because of what yeah. you said. Uh, your, your arrow with a bear shaft is nose heavy compared to the fletched arrow. Uh, and yeah. it's weaker compared to the fletched arrow. Uh, right. And uh, that makes all the difference. Uh, you might miss a deer because of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, or guys, listen, the importance of tuning your arrow. Here's the importance. It's easier to poke a hole through a piece of paper. If you go straight in, it's really hard to poke a hole through a piece of paper. If, you, if it hits, if it hits like this. So if your arrow is hitting your deer, just stiff, you're not getting the penetration that if it was, if it was just driving straight in, if I have to go get a shot at the doctor and they're going to try to stab me like this, I'm going to be mad at them because it's going to hurt worse. They're going to be pushing more flesh away than they have to. Uh, that's why your doctor goes straight in with a needle and straight out with a needle. Um, so by getting that and achieving that perfect arrow flight, you'll get better penetration because it'll be flying straight through the deer rather than hitting the deer at an angle and then having to correct itself before it goes through. Um, phenomenal tip there, Chuck. Thank you so much. Uh, Chuck, where can they find you, you at my friend? 
I'm on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Chuck Adams Archery uh, uh, Official. We got hacked, as you know, about a year and a half ago. And we went from Chuck Adams Archery to Chuck Adams Official. And then I have a website, chuckadamsarchery.com. Guys, I would highly encourage you to get Chuck's books. Um, Phenomenal reads. Um, Go check him out on social media if you just want to watch giant animals dying. Chuck's the place to be following and to be watching. Guys, I know, I know. Uh, cheap, interchangeable blade knives. They're all in the rage. Change your blade right there, and you can keep going. And it, It's cool, and I have one in my bag, and I like to keep one in my bag. However, there is no replacement for a well-built, hand-forged knife. Something that I know is dependable. It's strong. If I pick it up, it's going to be sharp. It's going to be ready to go. Um these right here are knives built by my good friend Nick Deeker, Nick's Knife Works. And um, the most beautiful part of this is it's not cut and dry. You don't just pick out a knife and say, well, I guess that's the one I need. No, 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 no. He built this one specifically to the length that I wanted it. I wanted this to fit right on the side of my binocular harness so it was always there, always ready for me to grab. He built this one to fit really small in my pocket uh, for an everyday carry. Guys, a good hand-forged knife is worth its weight in gold. Go check out Nick Deeker at nicksknifeworks.com. Thank you so much for coming on, Chuck. Again, huge congratulations from myself. Huge congratulations from Bear Archery and Pope and Young on your new world records, on your awards, on on just a phenomenal biannual um, in the woods. Well, thank you, Dylan. It's It's been a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, it's always fun doing a podcast with Dylan Ray. Hey, I you know, I try to make it fun. But <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you all have a fantastic week. <laughs>